50% to be averaging of marriages end in divorce. Isn't it incumbent upon us to figure out a way to do it better so that it's not such a, t- I mean, 50%, that's half of them. Don't we have to figure out a better way of doing it? That's Laura Wasser, renowned celebrity divorce attorney and managing partner of Wasser, Cooperman and Mandels. Breakups are going to be hard no matter what, but legislatively, administratively, you know, financially, there has to be a better way of doing it. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Laura Wasser to discuss navigating the media in high pressure and high profile cases, what it takes to become the go-to attorney for the most discerning clients, and why a good outcome isn't necessarily one that makes everybody happy. What is a good outcome is two people that actually may not be the best of friends, but have a certain level of respect for each other and understand the terms of the agreement that they reached that they came to on their own, not that was taken out of their hands and made by some judge that doesn't know them or their kids. Neither one of them is thrilled with it, but they both can live with it. And they didn't spend a ton of money on legal fees. Almost everybody that comes into my office, Michael, I sit down and they tell me their situation and I say, This is pretty much how it's gonna shake out. But now the question is, how long is it gonna take us to get there and how much money are you gonna spend in the process? That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I wanna remind you that we don't run any ads on this podcast. I'm not going to push any made to order meal services on you or try to save you money on your car insurance. But that being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast whatsoever, please give it a five-star review. This helps us reach more growth-minded leaders like yourself. Laura Wasser is regarded as one of the most elite divorce attorneys in the country, having represented high-profile celebrities like Kim Kardashian, Angelina Jolie, Johnny Depp, Britney Spears, and Ryan Reynolds. I began our conversation by asking Laura about her experience growing up in Southern California with not one, but two attorneys as parents. There was a lot of uh, debate (laughs) that went on, and I was on the DeVete team in high school, but when I wanted to do something or change something, extend my curfew, uh, get my first car. There was always a legal pad and a presentation involved. And so, you know, they really trained me from a very early age to advocate for myself and then a certain point for my little brother as well. And since both of your parents were lawyers, I think in particular your father at the time, I think he was regarded as like America's most feared divorce lawyer. So what was that like in in terms of your childhood? Because I imagine that made an impact when you were either like at a bar mitzvah or something like that. Yeah, there would be a lot of our misses where one parent would be like, oh, it's so nice to see you. And the other parent would be like, you're at the shitty table at the back because he had represented one or the other of them. But for the most part, you know, we were kids. I didn't know too much about what was going on um, until I got a little bit older and kind of understood. My parents didn't split up until I was in my junior year of high school, and they did it in the most respectful, amicable way. So, And my dad 
although he may have been the most feared, he really has always been a big proponent of resolution and settlement and doing things, if possible, out of court. And I'm curious, so your your name and your initials, like Laura Allison Wasser, L-A-W, law, uh, was that intentional? Yes, it was intentional by my parents. They found out that my father passed the bar exam and they celebrated by having sex and making me, they figured out. So that's why they named me Laura Allison Wasser and my initials are law. And I kind of fought it because I thought it was really geeky until I was in my 40s, well into my legal career, and then I embraced it, and now I actually have a couple monograms that say LAW. Now, it seems like becoming a lawyer was was always in the cards, but from what I've read, that wasn't always the case, including, you know, you spent a lot of time in, in New York, and when you were putting yourself through school at NYU, doing a lot of things not at all related to the practice of law. No, I did not think I was going to be an attorney. I wasn't, I didn't think I was going to live in Southern California. I did a lot of traveling when I was in my teens and 20s. I lived in Switzerland for a year. I lived in Canada for a while. I lived in Australia for a year and a half. And then I got married during law school to a fellow who lived in Madrid, Spain. So we were living there. So I really had the travel bug. I did a lot of, you know, writing about my trips and my adventures. And I probably thought I was going to go into some kind of a, you know, travel journalism field. And then kind of my folks said, here's the deal. We'll continue to support you as long as you're in school. And I thought, oh God, I better find somewhere to go to school. And so I decided to go to law school. I was a rhetoric major at Cal. I graduated from Berkeley. And And I decided to go to law school and I applied and I got here in here in Los Angeles at Loyola Law School, which is a great institution. And now I'm on their board of trustees. Then still didn't think I would be a divorce lawyer, family law attorney, but because the marriage to the Spanish guy had kind of come to an end after a lengthy 14 months, I had to go back to my dad and say, can I come clerk there for a summer while I wait for my bar results? And he begrudgingly, not being a big fan of nepotism, said that I could clerk for the firm because I needed the money to pay my rent. And I passed the bar and I found that I kind of had a a knack for it. And I really liked it. And he let me stay on. And now it's my firm. <laughs> so so it seems like you've had an interesting relationship with your dad. I mean, including the, the very first divorce case, right, that you tried in the sense. Of, so what I read, it was something along the lines of you coming to your father and saying that you didn't think that this marriage was going to work out. And he said you know, something to the extent of, well, then go ahead and take care of it. That is true. And so we actually this is back in 94, got an annulment. They were a little easier to get back then, which really means the marriage never took place, which would have been a surprise to everybody that worked at the Bel Air Hotel because my wedding portrait hung there for years, even after. Um, Yeah, but my parents were always very much in favor of, if you need something fixed, fix it yourself. You know, don't pack it if you can't carry it on the plane. And so that was, yes, my first case was my divorce or annulment. And then, I, like I said, I stayed on here and really it's a very, very interesting field of law. And I really have a passion for the human nature that's kind of involved in the transition from a marriage relationship to a co-parenting relationship or a separation or two different households or however that family decides to deal with the divorce. And when you joined your father's firm, you know, at the time, there, there weren't a lot of women trying cases. In fact, it seems like there was probably a stigma around that. How did that affect you and what drew you to actually want to try cases? Well, as I said, they've trained me from an early age to try cases. To be honest, 
there were females in family law. It was a field of law where females could practice. And there were some very good family law litigators, you know, when I started in the 90s that were women. So I didn't have to like kind of forge the path that so many of, you know, my colleagues have talked about. Things were definitely different. You didn't get to wear what you wanted. Um, you know, when I first started working at the firm, my father's partner, David Rosenson, said, well, women at this firm don't wear pants and you have to wear, you know, stockings. And I was like, ugh, you know, and it cover the tattoo because I have a tattoo on my ankle and don't wear more than, you know, one earring in each ear. And so that's certainly changed and it's changed for I believe all firms over time. And certainly as I took over managing this firm, we have a lot more kind of female friendly type of protocols here, including amazing parental leave and and that kind of stuff. When it comes to divorce, so I've read that I think 50% of marriages end in divorce. Now, again, I don't know who conducted this study, but those don't seem like very good odds. No, they don't. Keep in mind, and again, I think it did go down a little bit. We're always a little couple years behind on this research. So the last, I believe, accurate kind of figures that have been put out in the U.S. are still pre or during COVID. So it's really hard to say, you know, everybody said COVID, there's going to be such a surge. And we did in the online world see a bit of a spike because it was easier to do from home and you were cooped up with people. But for the most part, it's been a pretty steady 45 to 60%. Now remember, this is of marriages, not of every couple. So, And the stats show that second marriages are more likely to end in divorce than first marriages and third marriages even more so. So it's not every person, it's every marriage. And yeah, they're not good stats. And I always say that, which is if 50% to be averaging of marriages end in divorce, isn't it incumbent upon us to figure out a way to do it better so that it's not such a, I mean, 50%, that's half of them. Don't we have to figure out a better way of doing it rather than the old fashioned way that we saw in movies like Kramer versus Kramer. And we know that's so painful. And so breakups are going to be hard no matter what, but legislatively, administratively, you know, financially, there has to be a better way of doing it. So just from your experience, what are you finding is to be the most common reasons why why people are getting divorced? Lack of communication, lack of growth. Look, it's people would say it's fidelity or finances or whatever, but those are more symptoms than they are causes. It's human nature for us to fall in love and then we want to kind of lock into whatever is the most, you know, secure, protected, you know, having children together, yummy feeling, but obviously after a certain period of time Things aren't as fresh and alive and fun and you've got, there's always going to be downfalls. And what I have found is that couples that figure out a way to deal with their communication skills and really build tools for good communication when things are good, before they move in together, before they get married, as they're discussing a prenuptial agreement, perhaps, those are the couples that can weather the storm so that when things get bad, they can go into their you know, toolbox, pull out those things that help them connect and communicate and, and make it work. But people don't, they repress things, they shove them down, they get angry, they go outside the marriage. And that's why marriages don't end up together. People grow apart because they're not working on staying together. And for those that you've represented, let's say multiple times or numerous times, what is like the biggest mistake you find that they're making, like with clients in particular? 
not communicating, even if they're going through a difficult time, even if they're going through a divorce, the lack of kind of honest community. I have tons of people who are in counseling, even though they have no intention of reconciling. They're counseling to determine the best way to respectfully part or consciously uncouple, if you will. And I know it sounds very, you know, like hippy dippy, but really I do think that some of our celebrities have kind of led the way in terms of good behavior as you're going through this process. And I think it's really benefited a lot of people because we see them and we read about them and we want to emulate them because they're so glamorous and cool and beautiful. So we can't help but falling into that same kind of path, which is, okay, I'm going to be friends with my ex and we're going to have the kids' birthday parties together and we're going to be we're going to be really respectful of each other. And you having been on both sides, you've been married and you've been divorced. What are your views towards monogamy? Well, I think monogamy is great. I don't necessarily completely understand why everybody's in such a rush to get married and bring the state into it. But I'm a serial monogamous. I think it's important to have adult and mature relationships where you grow with the other person. Like I said, I have been married that one time for 14 months, but I have two sons. They have two different dads. We were never married. You know, that to me doesn't, isn't an important thing for my family. I understand why it's important for other people's families. And all I would ask is that as they're working their way through it and perhaps come to a point where they realize it has to end, that they kind of treat it with the same attention that they treated getting into it. And when it comes to like the celebrity divorces, I'm curious, how did you get get into that? Like, because now I guess you're, you're known for it, but was that always the case? No, but back in the day, I was probably one of the younger family law practitioners because usually family law firms are smaller boutique firms. So it's kind of hard to get your foot in the door. So once I got my foot in the door here, then, you know, I went to school here at Beverly Hills High School. I knew a lot of people that had gone into the entertainment industry. So they were either managers or entertainment attorneys or agents. And they had clients that wanted to talk to somebody that maybe looked like them, sounded like them, didn't mind the tattoo or the multiple piercings. And so they would send in Laura Wasser to talk to, whether it was a, a young pop star who's all of her agents really wanted her to have a prenuptial agreement or somebody that was going through a custody situation and needed somebody to understand what clubs that they were going to or maybe didn't need to go to while they had kids. And so that was me. And that's how it kind of came to be. And then I think our success and our, I think, really discretion in terms of trying to keep things relatively out of the public eye as people are going through a difficult time has been really some of the secret to our success at this firm. In working with numerous celebrities, how are these celebrity cases different from non-celebrity cases? They're not so different. I mean, I say all the time that divorce is the great equalizer. I mean, and yes, some of the celebrities may have more money than your average person, but most of our clients at the firm are pretty high net worth. I think the biggest change would be the the media and trying to keep things private and out of the media for the benefit of the family. And then the other thing is that often celebrities have a lot of people with whom they surround themselves who are getting paid either a percentage of what they make or just on payroll to make sure that that celebrity is happy and taken care of. And so that job is to say yes a lot. And that's not my job because all my job is is to interpret and imply the law. I can't change the law. I'm not a legislator. So I don't always say yes. And I end up saying no. And sometimes a celebrity who has now been for many years in the spotlight and surrounded her or himself with people that say yes, here's no, and they may not like that right away, 
They may even say, I don't think this is a good fit and I don't want to work with you anymore. And then they may actually come back later and say, I appreciate that you weren't trying to blow sunshine at my ass. I want to work with you. And why is that important? Just in terms of like going about a case and, and not being a yes man? Because you really have to build realistic expectations in family law. You can have the most sophisticated, successful, intelligent head of a studio or investment banker come to you and he or she will say, I don't know anything about divorce law. And you're like, well, of course you don't. Why would you? It's a totally foreign place for these folks. And it's dealing with the most raw and important emotions that they have regarding their significant other, their children. It's scary. So if someone comes to you and says, well, obviously I'm the mom, so I should have the kids full time, right? You have to say no. In California, we have not a written assumption, but a presumption that both parents will have equal time with the children. And I can't tell you that you're the mom and you should have the kids. And just because he's a jerk and he cheated on you, that might make him a bad husband. It doesn't make him a bad parent. And your kids have a right to experience their other parent as well. And so I think it's really important because it's a confusing and emotional enough time to not have somebody giving you the straight. Just looking back, was there a particular client or a case that was really kind of the catalyst behind a lot of this growth and kind of building this brand? I had done a lot of work for Stevie Wonder over the years with um, different partners that he had and the children that he had. And even though those were completely sealed cases because paternity actions in California are sealed, we became close. And I think just at that time, the people he knew, the people he referred, I think a lot of it really was word of mouth. We don't do any advertising at the firm. And so I think that was helpful. And then there were things that got picked up by the media. You know, when I represented Brittany or Christina Aguilera, some of those earlier cases, you know, did get some media pickup. But like I said, we really do try to keep it quiet. But for the fact that family law filings in California are public, we try not to get any of the other details of what's going on in those cases into the public eye. Which is fascinating because I've read that you don't like that these filings are public. In fact, you don't believe that they should be public. That's true. And I've gone head to head with some of the news organizations in terms of you know, weighing the interests. I understand the argument that keeping things public keeps judicial officers from giving preferential treatment or anything else. I have enough faith in our judicial officers that I don't think they're going to give anyone preferential treatment, whether they're private or public. And I do think that people have a right. I mean, you know, now we finish a divorce judgment and it says the address of the family, the custody schedule of their kids, the amount of support one party's paying the other every month, every car and piece of art that they receive, that's all available in the public realm. There's something about that that doesn't strike me as particularly equitable, even though these people have opted for a public lifestyle, they should be able to keep some of this stuff private. So we figured out a few loopholes and ways of doing that. But for the most part, for enforcement purposes, they are public. And, you know, that gives some great fodder for news organizations. It's interesting because as, as outsiders, I think someone will read something in a magazine or a paper and see these two celebrities break up and think, uh, this person's good, this person's bad, how could they do this? But from your experience, working with them on a more intimate basis, I think you've learned that you really can't judge these people. No, I mean, that is what I always say. You can't judge, you never know what's really going on. I mean, hey, I, I hear it all and I still don't always know what's going on because it's a very 
intricate and detailed conscious and subconscious situation that people are in. So no, you can't judge. You have to hope people will behave as well as they can when they're going through an incredibly painful and scary period. I imagine you've dealt with the media a lot. What are some of the the lessons you've learned in dealing with the media? Keep your mouth shut. (laughs) I mean, there's just no, I, I will admit, I am not smart enough or savvy enough to be able to navigate. So just saying nothing is really the best course of action. Quotes can be misconstrued. They get you when you're coming out of the courthouse. And I'm not a very big person. And there's 25 people walking backwards with cameras and microphones. It's actually scary. And so I definitely think that the best thing is to say nothing. Most of our clients will have PR people and they can speak better to that kind of stuff. It's not my you know, we're trying the case. We don't have juries in family law in California, so we're really trying the case for one person, and that's the judge. And he or she is unlikely to be, you know, keeping in touch with TMZ or Dateline or whatever the online things are. So as far as I'm concerned, whatever he or she is reading is the pleadings we put out there, and there's not much more that I have to say about it. I don't like cases that are tried in the court of public opinion. That's not really how I roll. And today, it sounds like you're in a very privileged position in the sense that you don't have to take on any case that you don't want to accept. Like, what are your criteria for when you decide to say yes or say no to a case? There's a financial criteria because it doesn't make sense for us to take them if they really can't afford us. My assistant, Vicky, does a screening of almost any of my prospective clients that calls. And we try to work with people that already have relatively realistic expectations. You know, somebody that comes in, you know, Vicky can usually weed out the crazies. <laughs> and I am lucky. I don't have to take on cases that are going to make me or anybody else in, in my staff miserable. It's Southern California. Almost everybody's been or, or in some kind of mental health care therapy, whatever. We're not therapists. We're lawyers. You need to go somewhere else for the therapy. We're good handholders. We've got good bedside manner. We try to explain things in simple terms so that people understand them. But in terms of the emotional healing that it comes along with this process, we're not best equipped to be able to provide that. And actually on that note, I want to dig in a little bit more in terms of like the providing of legal support versus emotional support. So it seems like you're pretty clear in the sense of the legal support side, but you're not really the shoulder to cry on. No, and I don't mean to sound harsh about it. I'm just not qualified. And I've had people come back later and say, I really appreciate it. Like you always seem to understand what I was going through and you had compassion for me, but you didn't try to like be my friend or, you know, trade advice over a glass of Chardonnay. And I really do appreciate that. And so I try, you know, that's something you kind of with time build up because you get very, very close with these people. They tell you everything about them. And it's hard not to feel like your friends and be there for them. I mean, we really, some of the younger attorneys at the firm know that we kind of have a policy that you return an email or text or a call within 24 hours. These people need to know somebody's there at the other end. But, you know, being very realistic about what you're saying to them on the other end, I think is is very important. And what about in terms of just setting boundaries? I mean, I I imagine maybe early on that there's an opportunity to get caught up in kind of the celebrity of, of everything that was going on in Los Angeles between being invited to various parties and things like that. Have you aimed to keep a distance between you and your clients in that industry or have you basically become more integrated with it? You have to remember who you are. You're not their friend. Sometimes you'll get invited to a party and you can either go and leave at the appropriate time. You don't want to be the last one there swinging from, you know, chandelier or anything. Um, It's still work. 
you know, there's a couple of clients over the years that outside of the case I've become friendly with, but for the most part, we're getting paid a lot of dollars per hour to represent these people and we're not their friends. And to be perfectly honest, it's not that hard to set the boundaries because after the case is over, they usually are very appreciative and respectful, but they don't want to hang out with us either because we remind them of a painful time. And I'm curious from the business side of it, in terms of like building your team, I imagine if you have new people coming on board, given the nature of your clients, I mean, there's a certain level of discretion. Are there things that you do to prepare people for what that's going to be like? I think they know. And I think the discretion aspect of it is so important that you wouldn't even come for a job interview here unless you realize that and were able to deal with that. And really in my 27 years of practicing, we've had little or no kind of security breaches, which has been pretty amazing. And that really speaks to the caliber of people that we have working here, all the way from our IT and file clerks to, you know, the equity partners. It's clear you're doing a lot of things right. I'm always curious on the, over the last 27 years, what would you say looking back across your career were some of the mistakes that you made or some of the things that you learned from? When I first started practicing, the judges that were downtown at Los Angeles Superior Court, which is where we mostly are, we have branch courts too, but they had been there. All of the family law judges had been there for years. And my dad knew them all. I mean, some of them came to my bat mitzvah. In the past 10 or 15 years, there's been a much more of a revolving door. It's not always people who want to be in family law departments. They're kind of serving their time before they get another assignment. And they may not be as educated about family law because they don't have the experience. And so having come from a background where you had these very experienced family law judges to now different, I have to, we've had to recalibrate. And I believe there must have been times earlier on where we were a little bit too matter of fact in how we were writing things and didn't really spell it out for the judges. After working with numerous high profile and high net worth clients, Laura saw an opportunity to serve a larger market. I asked her to elaborate on her decision to create an online platform, It's Over Easy. Back in 2013, I wrote a book because I had so many friends that were going through it that couldn't necessarily afford an expensive firm like our firm. And I constantly found myself at birthday parties and cocktail parties, you know, giving advice. So I wrote a book called It Doesn't Have to Be That Way. And it was very well received because it was really just like straight talk about how you know it's time to get divorced, like when that sign is, what the best way of figuring out your finances is, how to talk about kids and custody. And as a result of that, it became clear to me that and some of the nonprofit stuff that I do for organizations around Los Angeles, like the Harriet Buhai Center for Family Law or the Los Angeles Center for Law and Justice, there's a ton of people out there that don't have a ton of money that are still going through the same really scary time. So we created It's Over Easy, which is an online divorce platform that would give people the education about divorce and custody and, and support, and then also give them referrals if they needed people to help them with childcare or financial planning or insurance or, you know, finding a new apartment, packing up your apartment, and then actually had the forms online. And so that was in 2018. And then at the beginning of this year, we were acquired by divorce.com, which is a much bigger company with more resources. And they're, I'm loving being, I'm the chief of divorce evolution, C-O-D-E. And I'm helping them kind of figure out the best way of bringing divorce to the masses, so to speak. Because again, as you said, it's happening. I'm not promoting divorce. I'm promoting doing it in a way that makes a lot more sense financially and emotionally. 
I want to reemphasize the fact that this is reality, right? Like to an extent, there's what you can control and there's what you can't control. These people still need support. Yes, and look, I'm not promoting them getting divorced. I have, there's a ton of mental health professionals. I've been approached several times by people and even written articles about the little I do know about how to maybe keep things together. But once you've hit the point where you're getting divorced, we're here to help you out when that happens. That's all. And why is it, just from what you've seen, that when you see somebody get a divorce and then they get married again, then they get another divorce and then they're on the third marriage and they get divorced, what is the lesson that they're not learning? (laughs) You know what, I think, and I've talked to some of them, and it's mostly guys that I've talked to that are kind of three-time clients, and they say, I bet you think I'm really an idiot or whatever. No, people love to be in love. And again, different people have different reasons for why they actually want to tie the knot. But I think a lot of times one party or the other, it's not as important to, but it's important to the other party. And so you want to do what makes your loved one happy and feel safe. And look at Southern California, people love a good romance. They love planning the wedding. They love having the showers. I've had so many young people come to me a month or so after they've gotten married. And they said, God, I just it's such a letdown. Like for the past two years, we've been planning this wedding and having showers and going on, you know, the honeymoon and that phrase, the honeymoon is over. This is when your real life begins. And, you know, sometimes here in Hollywood, we're not well equipped to deal with real life. I do think that COVID made a lot of people sit in their relationships. And rather than what everyone else says about them all getting divorced, I think a lot of people learned how to deal with each other and their families. They changed the family dynamic in terms of who was home for dinner and who was cooking and who was cleaning and who was child caring. And I think some families came out of it even stronger one of the more important decisions you make in your life is is the person you perhaps decide to marry. But most of the time when people are making that decision, they're at a point in their life where they don't have a lot of clarity. They're very young. They don't have a lot of experience. And now they're making this potentially lifelong decision, which you know we're seeing now in almost 50% of cases is not, not lifelong. But any any advice on the front end for someone who's contemplating marriage? I would definitely say talk, communicate. Most religions have some kind of religious counseling before, you know, the Catholic Church, Judaism, you have to go talk to a priest or a rabbi and talk about why you want to get married and why you think you're a good couple and how you're going to raise kids. I would take it a step further and actually go see somebody, again, like I was saying earlier, to figure out how to kind of get those tools. I know it doesn't seem romantic, but prenuptial agreements are also a great way of getting that kind of clarity of what everybody's expectations are going into the marriage. Don't you want to know if your fiance has $100,000 in credit card or college debt? Don't you want to know what his or her feelings are about raising kids? And do they go to public school or do they go to private school? And what religion are we going to raise them? And and how much you know do you want to put towards retirement every year so that we can decide? I mean, these are conversations people don't have because they're not super sexy, but they're great conversations to have. So again, going into a marriage your expectations are realistic. And again, they may change. Things change as you evolve and grow older. And sometimes people really do just grow apart and no amount of communication is going to fix that. But going into it with your eyes open and having as much knowledge and ability to discuss things as possible, I think is really helpful. And then also knowing if at a certain point it doesn't work out, don't let it fester or go outside the marriage for an affair that's going to hurt somebody's feelings. Deal with it at the time. You know, and we've done a lot of work back at It's Over Easy and now with Divorce.com about next chapters, about moving on to the next chapter in your life and how to do that if you have kids with somebody 
co-parenting, making your co-parent your greatest ally and moving on to the next phase, which is not failure, horrible, you know, now it's rebuilding, but just whoever the next person you're going to be in terms of dating and education and career and all that. We actually started a company called the Next Chapter Collection, which is candles for people if they want to, like as they're getting ready to go on their first date, you know, you light your gratitude candle or you light your candle that says, you know, smells like freshly signed divorce papers and they're great gifts, but it's also just a lot of fun about your next chapter. When, when you're working with a client, what's considered a good outcome? Like, does fairness ever play a role? Totally. I mean, look, we always say to people, don't say fair. Fair doesn't really matter in divorce. But what is a good outcome is two people that actually may not be the best of friends, but have a certain level of respect for each other and understand the terms of the agreement that they reached that they came to on their own, not that was taken out of their hands and made by some judge that doesn't know them or their kids. Neither one of them is thrilled with it but they both can live with it. And they didn't spend a ton of money on legal fees. Almost everybody that comes into my office, Michael, I sit down and they tell me their situation and I say, this is pretty much how it's gonna shake out. But now the question is, how long is it gonna take us to get there and how much money are you gonna spend in the process? Is there anything that surprises you at this point? Of course. I mean, yeah, I always get surprised. I'm still surprised that people can be close-minded about certain things. I'm still surprised that people, I'm not totally surprised that people can have such hate, but I am always surprised when people hold on to their hate for a really long period of time. There's always, after a certain amount of months of separation and dealing with a divorce, usually things kind of calm down. People just can't be angry for that long. Sometimes I get surprised that they can be. And then I'm often surprised that fellow family law attorneys can kind of get away with just churning the pot for as long as they can and continuing to generate fees off of somebody else's conflict. I'm surprised that they can feel good about themselves doing it, and I'm surprised that their clients let them. I'm curious, as your brand has grown just over the years, what's been the relationship with the rest of like your peers or the legal community? Was, was there any animosity? There's sometimes some animosity. I've had some people say to me, like, you know, starting an online divorce, like, like divorce.com, that is cannibalizing. And I'm like, no, these are not clients that would ever come to us. These are people that, you know, can only afford $1,000 to get divorced. These are not our clients. So no, this is actually clearing up some of the glut that we have in the courtrooms because we're taking them out of the courtrooms. There has been animosity with people that just practice differently than we do at our firm. We are very resolution-oriented. We're very realistic. Again, I came up at a time where you could have a handshake because you were working with the same opposing counsel again and again and again. So I am still surprised if somebody says something to me over a telephone call and then I get an email two days later saying the opposite. You know, shame on me to be fooled. But I really do believe that your integrity is one of the most important things to have. And so most of my colleagues and I get along very well. We send each other cases. You know, we have study groups or bar, you know, events every once in a while. We're hopefully going to be getting back to that now that the pandemic is easing away. And it's a great bar, the family law bar, because we are all people that are trying to problem solve and help people get through things. And Laura, just as a whole, do you, do you enjoy what you do? I do. <laughs> I wouldn't do it if I didn't. I really do enjoy what I do. I enjoy the people I work with. I enjoy getting to know new clients and helping them through something and being able to kind of, you know, I say to people all the time, I don't know much about anything, but I know a lot about one thing, and that is divorce and how to move through it and how to like let go of some of the anger. And so, yeah, I really do enjoy it. And I enjoy 
speaking to, whether it's women's groups about it, being on podcasts like yours, going to speak at law schools about how to best practice and own a law firm and work for other people in a service-oriented business. I, I really enjoy it. And I'm curious, so we've talked about on previous podcasts, this idea of like keeping the fire burning. So meaning that once you reach a certain level of success for many, like complacency sets in, what keeps you going? Like what keeps you doing what you're doing and growing and other business ventures, things like that? I think it really is just a passion for learning about human nature. And again, figuring out, my passion has always been what we call the evolution of dissolution, figuring out a way to make it better for families, particularly kids, because so many of us had really miserable experiences when our parents split up. As I said, I didn't, but I had so many friends that did. And to save kids from that, and the adults, the adults that are putting their kids through that are in pain too, helping people get to a better place. And I do, I feel like, as of you know, today in 2022, we've moved the needle even just a little. I'd like to be able to move it more before I'm done with my work. I think it's really, really important. And so in addition to helping lots of clients at the firm get through their situation on a one-on-one -on -one basis, casting a wider net and helping people overall, educating people about relationships and divorce, that's kind of my jam. And I do. I love it. I'm curious, are there any habits that you practice, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis that keep you engaged and focused and energized, like anything, whether it's personal or professional? Yeah, I mean, I, I've tried for years to meditate. My dad was a huge meditator. My brother meditates. I can't quiet my mind. But I do run almost every morning, and I swim. We're here in Southern California, so if I keep my pool warm, I can actually go in even on the colder mornings. I swim. I do Pilates. Having kind of an active physical ability, that is the one place, particularly the morning runs. It's really early. I have a pit bull named Pablo and we run together and it just kind of clears my head and it really helps me. The days that I don't, if I have like an early court appearance or something, I totally see the difference in how I, in my patience level, my irritability, not as good if I've had a good run in the morning. And what about in terms of just personal growth? Are there mentors that you have or coaches or other entrepreneurs that you call on when, when you need advice? Well, my dad's always been a great mentor and he's still here at the firm a few days a week and I can still call on him. Sadly, I, we lost my mom a few years ago, um, but I still miss her every day. She was an amazing cheerleader for me and just unconditional source of you know love and support. And then believe it or not, even though they're significantly younger, my kids, I mean, you know, watching them go through school and go through their teen and preteen experiences. My older one is starting to think about applying to college now, watching the world through their eyes. I mean, they're such awesome guys and watching how they kind of process things. It teaches me a lot because our youth today really does go about things differently than, than we did just in terms of dating and gender references and racial and religion. And they're, they're so much open, more open-minded than I ever was. It's staggering and I do, I learn from them every day. If at some point I imagine, let's say one of your kids comes to you and says, mom, I want to marry this person. Like, what what advice do you give them? Prenup. <laughs> you know what? It would depend. But I, I think, again, I've even watched my older son have relationships with, with girls he's in school with. And I think that there's a lot more communication. I think there's a lot more kind of understanding male-female energy. The girls that I've met that he's brought home have been lovely. And I would hope that I'd be happy with his decision. But if I'm not, I would hope I'm smart enough to keep my mouth shut. I'm still a Jewish mother after all, so. 
There you go. There you go. So I'm, I have to ask, because I, I imagine there's always going to be somebody wondering who's listening to this podcast, um, has accrued a certain level of wealth, and they're unhappy in their relationship, no prenup. What, what do they do? Well, I think depending on what state they live in, you have to look at the law in your state. Are you in a community property state? Or are you in, ec- in an equitable distribution state? You also So you want to look at what you have. I mean, there's four corners of every divorce, notwithstanding the kids. You're looking at what you have and what you accrued during your marriage. You're looking at any debt that you have, so what you owe. Then you look at what you earn every year and what your spouse earns if he or she earns anything and what you spend. And those are the four corners, what you have, what you owe, what you earn, and what you spend, and figure out, and you may want to go online and you know search your jurisdiction for how they handle those things, or have a consultation with a family law attorney just to kind of get an idea. Most of us will give a first consultation for free, and get your ducks in a row. That's what I would say. I would say, you know, sometimes people feel like, and I know it sounds harsh, but you know, that they can't afford to get divorced, or you know, the phrase cheaper to keeper. Sometimes people think that getting divorced is going to be the answer to all their problems. It may not necessarily be that. So think about what it will mean for you kind of financially. Then think about what it will mean for you emotionally. Watching the podcast and thinking, God, I just really want to get divorced. Ask yourself why that is. What do you think is going to be so much better if you get divorced? And just looking back over the years, what was the best advice you'd received and what was the worst? I think the best advice that I ever received was from an older judicial officer, I was in his chambers with a, with another with opposing counsel, and he said, be nice to each other and tell your clients to be nice to each other. And so rather than nice, because I, I don't love the word nice, I always say, be kind. I mean, it doesn't cost anything, you know? And if you can kind of be the bigger person, whether it's in a relationship that I'm having with somebody, or if I'm asking my clients who are inevitably going to be dealing with their about-to-be ex for many, many years if they've got kids together or businesses together, be kind. It doesn't cost anything. I don't believe that the nice guys finish last. I really believe the nice guys are happier about how they approach the world and they will do better. And often, whoever you're being nice to will kind of rise to the occasion as well. And what would you say, what was the worst piece of advice? I think the worst piece of advice that I've ever gotten was, you know, just go for the jugular, go for the throat. You know, you have to be more aggressive. I don't find that to be the case. I want to always figure out what the bottom line is. And if we need to do it, get there. We at our firm are really good litigators, which is really nice to have that if you need it. But like I said, it's going to always cost so much more. I always tell people, don't throw you know good money after bad. Let's figure out if we can effectuate this in a way that makes more sense. But I do know, I mean, you know, my dad will always say to me, why do you get so frustrated with so-and-so, whoever the lawyer is? He or she's making us a ton of money. I don't need money that way. That's not good advice. You know, being aggressive and being acrimonious, I do not think, particularly in family law, but in any kind of litigation endeavor, I don't think that that's the way to go. Working with so many high net worth individuals, because hopefully we can settle this debate. Do you believe that money changes people? I think money changes some people. I think it depends when in your life you get it. I think it depends who you've surrounded yourself with. You know, they say more money, more problems. But my mom's friend always used to say, it's just as easy to fall in love with a rich man as it is a poor man. I think people have interesting relationships with money. Most of the clients at the firm are fortunate enough that there's plenty of money. Nobody's living in their car. Nobody's electricity is getting turned off. Nobody's scrounging around to be able to feed their kids. When you see those folks and how they're living when we've done, you know, some of our pro bono work, that's a problem. And I, don't, I try not to rub that in my client's face. I think most of them are aware of it. 
those people really have problems. Who you're going to take to the Oscars, not the biggest problem. But it is true. Everything is relative. Yeah, it seems like there's such a disconnect between how people make personal decisions from how they make business decisions. Oh my gosh, I've had clients, guys, that are just the most brilliant businessmen. I mean, it's cr unbelievably crazy. And then when it comes to their personal relationships, they're like opening a vein, the blood is just spurting out. And I don't get it, but like I said, A, not my money. B, you can't really help them if you're judging them. And Laura, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I think being a game changer uh, means to me to not be afraid to do things differently, to disrupt a bit, to think outside of the box, not get complacent, really have passion for what you do and want to effectuate change, evolution of dissolution. I want to give a huge thank you to Laura Wasser for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was Laura's approach to maintaining a strong brand and reputation. Consistency is everything. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Laura Wasser, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with the founder of Rodney Scott's Whole Hog Barbecue, renowned restauranteur and James Beard award-winning chef, Rodney Scott. To come from cooking that first hog to where I stand currently today, it's about a 30-year ride. I explained it to a group as a 30-year overnight. There's a lot of hard work in it. There's a lot of sweat blood and tears that's been all up in creating and getting to that first restaurant level. A lot of fear, a lot of determination. It takes a whole lot of optimism because you can easily lose focus and, and be down and give up. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.